and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. A hung parliament, the first coalition in a generation, then minority government, three referendums, three cabinet secretaries. Brexit, then Covid, war in Europe, then a cost of living crisis. A year with three prime ministers, record-breaking numbers of ministerial resignations, an increasingly strained relationship between ministers and the civil service. And somewhere in all of that, a whole lot of policy and parliamentary drama. The last decade or so has tested the machinery of Westminster to its limits and sometimes beyond. Sometimes our system of government has worked, sometimes it hasn't. So why not? What's the problem? And can it be fixed? And did things really used to be a whole lot better or are we all guilty of looking back through the lenses of rose-tinted spectacles? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring today, a subject that definitely needs more than one podcast, but we are going to give it a go. So I've called up a pair of the IFG's finest brains to help me, our resident historian, Kath Haddon, and our expert on all things government and civil service, Alex Thomas. Hi, both. Hello. Hi, Anna. And I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Dunt, the political journalist and commentator whose new book is called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us. No, not at all. Thanks for having me. So we've got Lots to discuss today. You've been working in or around Westminster for a good number of years. When did your doubts start to set in? <laughs> uh, I mean, if I'm realistic about that, I think they set in before I arrived in Westminster. <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't have the impression that it was all working tremendously well on the day that I arrived, let alone what happened afterwards. And through there, they've been sort of several, I suppose, periods. And at certain moments, you think, well, actually, it's sort of, you know, tolerable in terms of being able to deliver what you're doing. So the coalition period, putting aside whether austerity is a good idea or an absolutely terrible idea, probably the latter. But in terms of government's ability to just deliver on it, it was able to do it really very effectively. And I think afterwards, you start to see how the levers might be a little bit more bunged up in other matters. And before we get into the specifics, I mean, do you think there was an age when government was working much better? You picked out the coalition there, and that arguably was quite sort of an aberration in our recent history. But do you think if we look further back, there's a time when uh, the civil service really was a Rolls Royce that never broke down? I'm um, I'm generally quite cocky answering these questions when I'm on other podcasts, but now I'm on yours, so I feel the need to be much more <laughs> circumspect. <That's good. laughs> um, but no, I don't. I don't really. I mean, you know, that sort of core Harold Lasky sort of, you know, oh, it's just all the it's the best in the world. And I honestly thought that myself, or at least I think I just assumed it. Uh, partly, honestly, if we, if we, you know, if we're really honest about it, a lot of the time, just because of yes, minister. If you're of a certain age, you were growing up with that in the background, and most importantly, you were growing up with people who are older than you assuring you in these hushed tones, "Oh, but don't worry, the civil service take care of all this." The only reason they were saying that is because they'd saw, seen yes, minister. You know, it wasn't because they had some sort of deep understanding. And I think when you go back, I mean, when you look at the reports, even from the '60s or whatever, you sort of think, "Well, no, that looks a lot like what we have now." The same problems, the same sort of generalism lack of hard sciences background. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like there really was a true golden age for the civil service or for government. Cass, do you agree with that? I do. Uh, I'm always very resistant to the rose-tinted spectacles. Uh, there was certainly an age where there was a, a greater deference uh, to senior civil servants and a very hierarchical civil service. And I think for a lot of people, that's created the sense that there was this sort of golden age of big beasts in the civil service who were astride all the issues. But actually talking to a lot of them, I remember one uh, civil servant I interviewed, permanent secretary, who was there sort of be well before the Blair years. And I asked him, you know, what were your priorities when you took over as a permanent secretary? And he said, well, just kind of steering the ship. Um, 
you know, we, we should remember that these were not experts. I remember another senior civil servant, he was put into the establishment's officer role, which was basically their head of HR at that time. And it was just because they felt it was his turn. He had no expertise in the area, nothing to sort of bring to it. And I think the same is true for a lot of government. You know, we are very harsh about today's government and with, you know, good reason. If I think if we applied the same um, lens to previous governments, there would have been colossal wastes of money, poor policy making, poor policy outcomes, all sorts of problems if we put the sort of same same lens of scrutiny uh, through previous governments. So, yeah, I think resist that temptation. Well, that's fair. Alex, I mean, are we making fair comparisons here, though? The job of the civil service presumably has has completely changed. And so what we ought to expect of it now is presumably completely different. Also for politicians, totally different environment which they're working in now as compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago. Yes, I do think that's right. And on the, I mean, on the sort of, uh, was there a golden age? I completely agree with Ian and, uh, and Kath. I mean, the phrase that sticks in mind on that is, you know, first mention of Dominic Cummings, ding, ding. Um, but he uh, talked at one point about, um, uh, about you know, you think at some point going into government, there are, uh, you know, a load of ninjas who are going to able to be able to, to solve everything for you and then said something like, there's a door where there are lots of ninjas. There are no ninjas, there is no door. It's the phrase that stuck in my mind. Well, of course there are no ninjas. Of course there's no door. These are, you know, flawed people trying to uh, do the best they can in a system that is sometimes functional and quite often dysfunctional. So, you know, yeah, completely agree with that. On your on, on the fair unfair comparisons point, I think I think the context absolutely has changed. Uh, the media context, social media, the speed of government, the expectations that people put on government, the expectations that people put on MPs. Um, uh, I mean, Ian talks in his book about the kind of you know social worker, local authority side of the MP uh, role. I think that applies in government to some extent as well. But there is a slight a kind of counsel of despair that government is just so complicated that we can't do anything. Actually, when you take a step back from government, a lot of these things aren't that complicated. It is about sort of systems and management and um, clarity of organisation. And uh, so what I what I don't think is a healthy attitude is to say that just because things have changed a lot and the media landscape's very complicated and the pressure is very intense, that that means there aren't some actually quite kind of basic solutions that uh, that you can apply to some of these problems. And what about the argument that other people run complex organisations apparently much more sort of effectively than it looks like government is being run, but that's just inevitable because of the politics. Well, I think the, the apparently is doing a bit of work there in your um, in your question. <laughs> I think part of it is that we just have less scrutiny of private sector organisations and so all the kind of cock-ups and things that go wrong aren't quite as um, uh, emblazoned across the uh, the media. Um, I, I think part of it is the... Part of it is the politics. Part of it is the overhead that comes with scrutiny. So the sort of parliamentary questions and the way you respond to the public. I think we need to accept that part of doing government is that there is an overhead that comes with that. And that's because we are all as citizens invested in government in a different way to the way you're invested in a private company. Could I chip in on that for a little bit? Absolutely. Um, it was it was like all the way through the book, I kept on talking to sort of friends who are in large corporate entities. SMEs, it, it wouldn't really work, but but in very large corporate entities and sort of seeing which bits aligned from particularly the civil service and, and private offices for ministers and which bits didn't with their experiences. And some bits really do. So like the, the bit about sort of the risk aversion in the civil service that leads, leads civil servants very often to just pass up decisions upwards, just because you just want to cover your ass, basically. You just want to not get into too much trouble. So the easiest thing to do is just 
cast it upwards until ultimately it hits the minister and they're making, you know, 10,000 decisions a day. That does get a lot of recognition in the private sector in large corporations. They sort of say, no, this is just the culture. You always get this. There's this real bottleneck of decision-making because of risk aversion. The bit that doesn't is, for instance, the box work of just having this incredibly sort of straight-jacketed system for decision-making that pushes many ministers to be making really quite important decisions, you know, when there are a couple of glasses of wine down at the end of a very, very long and exhausting day. And the attitude to that was generally like, well, that is just a completely insane way to make any decision. So it's quite interesting that like, with, with more things than we think, there is an overlap. But with certain key areas, the private sector will look at it and just think, well, we wouldn't run for very long if we tried to do it that way. What's the private sector equivalent of that then? I mean, if, if their leaders are being given lots of decisions to make because there is similar risk aversion from lower levels of the organisation, how are they making those decisions in a better way? It's a slowdown, but I mean, my impression was that it was a lot more, you know, a lot more meetings, which I think to a minister would sound completely mad because they're in meetings an awful lot of the time. But the, for instance, if you're going to make a decision about, you know, funding models for, you know, a public sector reform, you probably wouldn't, I mean, it doesn't, submission doesn't see in, in a red box, doesn't seem like the best way of laying out that kind of information, whereas a meeting tends to be a sort of more effective way of doing it. So we've touched there a couple of times on Parliament, and let's work our way, I think, today through the various institutions of government that you touch on in your book, Ian. So starting with Parliament, it's fair to say we have been living through particularly unusual times, turbulent political times, um, and that necessarily affects the ability of the people at the centre of it all to do their jobs. But you talk in your book, Ian, about the role of an MP and how that has changed independently of this of this turmoil, in a sense, that there's a disjunction between the ideal of an independently-minded MP who comes to Westminster with the, bringing their experience and their views and, and brings those to bear upon political processes and the reality of how they're told what to say and how to vote. How do you think we should be trying to think about the incentives there are on MPs when they're in Parliament doing their jobs? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. <laughs> if you could just solve that for us. You're right. No, that's fine. Just give me a couple of minutes. Um, I mean, it, I do think it's primarily about incentives, but I think that that, that process starts at the, at the selection stage where it, it's fascinating just, just talking to people about selection. It's almost like it's a sort of job interview for a completely different position. You know, there's, it's a job interview for how to win an election, but there is absolutely, I mean, almost nothing in that process about what MPs are expected to do once they get to Parliament. I mean, over and over again, I kept on sort of asking them the same question, which is, did anyone at any point in selection, whether it's a Hustings, whether it's in front of the selection committee, whether it's at an away day organised by HQ, did anyone at any point talk about how you would scrutinise legislation? And the answer from every party and every individual was no, that it never came up. The closest you got to it, was predominantly conservatives for some reason, sort of being asked, you know, what would be the things that you would rebel over, which is close, but still not the same thing. So, I mean, even at that level, we're just not selecting for the capacity to do that. And once you get into Parliament, we then really bring the sort of bludgeon down to insist that your career prospects, but also in a, in a way that I don't think we talk about enough, your social prospects, your ability to just have a support network around you is often highly dependent on being what you're told by the whips. For most MPs, you know, they are picked to be partisans. They are partisan people. Often their romantic relationships as well as their social relationships, as well as their professional relationships are based around the identity of the party. So that kind of incentive on them is powerfully effective. And what it does, in my opinion, is it eradicates their willingness and eventually 
their, their capacity to exercise independent judgment on the legislation that passes in front of them. The one way I see out of it, the one, you know, when you see MPs who really perform well or can find some space from that, they're usually MPs who just found one issue that they care about, one policy area, whether it's housing or prisons or drugs policy, where they're like, look, okay, fine, I'll do it for the rest of it. But in this area, I'm going to find out what I'm going to, you know, I'm actually going to learn something about it. And I will exercise my independent judgment there. But doing it from more than one area is hard. And it's rare that they even do it for that. It's really interesting, because actually, one of the things that Hannah, you and I have talked about a lot recently, along with Alice Lilly, has been whether that is actually shifting in recent years, that newer MPs are becoming more independently minded. It's been attributed partly to COVID, the 2019 intake coming in, and then immediately working in a virtual sense, and so not being socialised in the same way into that sort of culture that Ian's been talking about. And the other being the impact of social media and other factors of whether or not they're they're much more about their own personal brand. Um, but at the same time, I think where Ian's right is there is a bit of a, a tension here that obviously a big role for MPs, there's the constituency work, there's sort of other roles in and around Parliament, but a lot of it is supposed to be about le- legislation scrutiny. And if you don't have expertise in that scrutiny, how do you get it done? And that's one of the reasons why a lot of that detailed scrutiny ends up falling to the House of Lords. So we do have a tension in the system. And it is, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. It is very much about the overload of what MPs are put through. And especially when we live in a world where they are supposed to be on social media, reacting to whatever's going on on twi- Twitter, being on the media, doing the rounds, uh, you know, if they're approaching a general election, if they're wanting to be part of government, trying to learn skills around how to to do those kind of jobs. So it's a massive job. And the thing that I think Ian's book picks up quite well is that we don't resource them very well at all. You know, the average MP has got like a few people pretty much straight out of university to be their key researchers on this stuff. Um, It's a massive job. And again, if you're talking about the private sector, you know, these people are would be at the top of any kind of organisation. They are, Even if you're a backbench MP, you've still got a lot of power and a massive job. And yet we resource them in an extraordinarily deficient way. And I think that's something that we don't really reflect on enough. One of the other points that I picked up on in, in Ian's book that I think we don't talk about in these terms quite often enough is that it's not that we're saying that MPs shouldn't have a, a local basis or a good understanding of their constituency, but the objective for an MP is to direct their attention to those bits of the national government or the sort of executive state that are relevant for that. I'm less worried about an MP's skills in scrutinising line-by-line legislation. I think there is a point there. I'm more worried about how well they understand how government works, Mm. how they can hold ministers to account, how they can be a better minister (coughs) if they come there. And it feels like you know, okay, it is useful to have an MP who's a lawyer who can get into the get into the line by line stuff. But as you powerfully make the case in that there's there's not a lot of that that actually happens, and there should be more of it. Um, but the 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 understanding of the nature of the executive and how to hold it to account, but also translate a, a particular political or ideological position into changing people's lives, statescraft, if you like. It feels like that is the sort of thing that we should be worrying about, the skills that RMPs have as well. It's almost like you're saying there should be an organisation out there helping to support people to understand government better. (laughs) Almost like. What a a great time for the IFG Academy. (laughs) But I think, I mean, for, for me, I think partly it's, yes, it would be really good to have MPs more engaged in the detailed scrutiny of legislation, as you argue, Ian. I think there's also something about people 
recognizing the value of the scrutiny process in and of itself yeah. sort of more writ large because it almost feels like recent years the sort of position we've got into is is both MPs thinking, well, it's not, you know, the scrutiny process of scrutiny of legislation doesn't really change legislation very much, so what's the point? Mm. And also it's been turned into, it's become part of this question around loyalty. You know, if you're scrutinising legislation, that's that's inherently criticising the government. You don't want to criticise the government rather than it being seen as a sort of constructive or why don't we all just work together to make sure this legislation is the best it can be. Mm. And so when I used to sort of clerk committees, most of the amendments that were put down we're often sort of probing amendments can we understand why the government has chosen to do this this way can the can the minister on the record explain you know what the thinking is so that we can understand that so we can sort of test it a bit and that seems to have got into a much more oppositional space like you, you don't engage in legislating because implicitly that's about being critical of the government and essentially you know the government doesn't want its legislation amended because it's you know it's, it's or or the reverse that any opposition attempts to do that as seen as they're just trying to score points when yeah. actually a lot of time MPs when they do do that are just simply wanting to make sure that what gets onto the statute books is as good as possible and the value they can bring is from their constituencies yeah where we're saying, you know, they've got that identity. Because, for example, if we think about the coronavirus legislation, a lot of the things that were in the end changed about the Coronavirus Act were to do with people saying, well, actually, I know this thing from yeah. the people I talk to on a day-to-day basis. This thing isn't going to work. Or have you taken this into account? And that if that is seen as sort of an illegitimate process, I think that's what's yeah. problematic. You almost get this sort of dual emotional sense from MPs at the moment when you talk to them. On the one hand, you sort of have this yearning especially from opposition MPs, of, I do just want to fix bad legislation. You know, like, I mean, that is a thing that I wish to be doing. And, and this sort of frustration with the way that they know they can be as productive or as eloquent or as granular or as knowledgeable as possible. And it won't make any real difference, whether, you know, it's a committee stage or whether it's a report stage or, or whether it's a second reading or anywhere else. Because it is the piece of legislation is going to get through and their amendments are almost certainly not going to make it. And then there's the sort of flip side, which is the this sort of almost sense of infantilization of MPs, that so much of what they have to do in the Commons is pointless. I think predominantly because of the majority, but not just that, because of the whole culture around it, I think, because of the partisan macho culture around parties, that they sort of just start to retreat from thinking that way. I mean, you know... The thing that concerns me is whenever there is an opportunity for a more forensic assessment of something, and the classic version of this is is report stage, where really it should be quite pinpoint, the contributions from most MPs become a still very, very general, broad brushstroke. And the tendency then is towards making it easier for them to be very general in their contributions, for instance, by having fewer groups or a supergroup at report. And, And that sort of seems to indicate you know, that, that, that actually, that on a sort of almost psychological level and an emotional level, the problem is actually weirdly getting worse, that their ability to be serious about what they're being asked to do, whether it's on the legislation itself or scrutiny more broadly, is actually becoming more diminished. And, and partly that is to do with knowing that the House of Lords is going to be there to clean everything up at the end of the day, and thank God for that. So you get this sort of dual emotional role of the infantilization with this persistent sense of yearning of wanting to be more productive in the legislative process and more broadly, I think. Alex, you talked about wanting, feeling that you wanted MPs to have a better understanding of how government works, but do you think that civil servants have a good enough understanding of how parliament works and that that plays into this dynamic a bit? 
on, on that question and more generally, let's not get too kind of carried away with any sense of golden era to kind of come back to where we started. You know, government's always uh, not known enough about parliament and um, resisted efforts of parliament to um, scrutinise legislation and to make itself uh, awkward. That kind of tension has always been there more or less creatively. And to some extent, we've had more truculent parliaments and more MPs who are willing to rebel or make difficulties for government than we than we have done going back uh, decades. In, in terms of civil servants understanding parliament, it, always a problem, particularly uh, after a period of large majorities, as you had in New Labour and then actually in the coalition uh, period. The need to understand and to get into the weeds of parliamentary procedure to understand what motivates MPs and peers is much less uh, present. There are absolutely uh, pockets of expertise. Ian talks in the book about the um, parliamentary business legislation uh, team, small team in the Cabinet Office who do follow Parliament. I think it was a very good innovation and very worrying uh, when it's been rowed back to have a team in number 10 specifically focused on uh, legislation and to give the Prime Minister direct advice on legislation that is, you know, in line with but not from the whips um, because if you're just getting advice from the whips you're getting quite a kind of partial sense of, of that. So it exists in pockets but I do think still as civil servants basically working up a policy and thinking about how to get it through and how to legislate for it, the, the nuances and the intricacies of parliamentary knowledge isn't, isn't there sufficiently. And that's despite lots of ministers actually thinking that that's a problem and wanting the civil service to be better at understanding parliament because they care about parliament in a kind of, they bothered to get elected to it. Yes, and, and, and some of them care more than others and some of them frankly have more expertise than others because it's quite, you know, I've definitely sat in meetings with ministers where I'm the one explaining to them how Parliament's worked and we're kind of taking a bill through. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that ministers have a deep understanding of the kind of parliamentary procedure at least, but what they, you know, the best ones do keep continually reinforcing, reinforcing is that Parliament matters. It's where we get the mandate from. Uh, we can't really do anything without Parliament and that it should be higher up on the list of things that sort of motivate and energise government activity than it often is. OK, let's cross the road from Parliament to number 10, a building which for nearly all the wrong reasons has made a lot of headlines in the last year or so. The IFG Centre Commission is doing a lot of thinking about how the centre of government works or doesn't and will be setting out our recommendations in the months ahead. Ian, tell us what you think the biggest problems are with number 10. I mean, I think the problem is the architecture, uh, which is that we've put the government in a house. And it's really very hard to run modern government from a house. And we've known this for some time now. I mean, you can go back to the Wilson administration. You obviously, you know, you had Jonathan Powell saying the same thing under New Labour. You had Dominic Cummings saying the same thing under Boris Johnson. It doesn't really matter the sort of, you know, the, the otherwise character of the administration, their political goals. You hear the same thing over and over, which is just like, it's just really hard to run anything from in here because it's a 17th century townhouse. And I, I suspect that that, or at least from the conversations I've had with people that have worked in there, that, that, that the crampedness of the space and its unsuitability for modern government means that you, you develop these really quite strange working models. I mean, pr predominantly based on a sort of sense of professionalized loitering. You know, your status re requires you to just sort of try and be at a certain place at a certain time. Now, there'll always be a certain amount of that, but you can try and iron it out by having a rational culture. Now, one of the things you can actually say, I mean, he, he did it in a very dominant coming sort of way of, you know, well, we're going to make this international space station of COVID stats coming across the walls and all of that kind of stuff. But at least he had the sense of like, no, we, we need a better, more logical working space than this. And, it, it, you know, it's a finding that many previous people have come to. And, and if we could get past our... It's a really difficult thing to say, right? If you say, 
the government should not be in number 10. We've just got to move it out of there and turn it into a museum. You sound like you've kind of lost your mind in British political terms. But the truth is, if we were to look at it without any sentimentality, that is the first and most obvious thing that I think you would do. There is obviously a sort of historic attachment that we've all got to the the building, you know, the black door, all the rest of it. But you can't really argue against that in terms of the logic of a, a building as a space to work in, though it should be said it's not like the Cabinet Office is not, you know, also has its warren of, of rooms and weird corridors and, and so forth. So this is true of other buildings in Whitehall. But for me, I think the issue is, though, it we've still got this fundamental tension of what is the role of the Prime Minister. And there is a risk that if you're sort of moving, therefore, inexorably towards this idea of a department for the Prime Minister and a command centre for government, there's a fundamental tension between that and the fact that most power in terms of legislation, in terms of actually getting stuff done, resides with with ministers. So you're always going to have this tension. It can be a creative tension, which is that departments have the space and skill and expertise and large numbers of people to actually get on and get stuff done. But the centre is, when it's at its best, very good at keeping an eye on the strategic oversight, chasing delivery, having the authority to unlock problems across Whitehall and so forth. The problem is that too often that doesn't work and the reverse happens. And But the other fundamental problem I don't actually think is solved by the architecture is it, it's the role of the prime minister that leads people to want proximity, that leads it to be a sort of court-like atmosphere where everyone wants to be the, the most, you know, the last person in the room with the prime minister so that their idea is the one that he walks away with and hopefully doesn't change their mind about. So a lot of it does actually depend on the the functioning of the prime minister and the degree to which they understand that. And so they treat their teams in a logical way. So you can't operate in a way uh, where you can just solve this through architecture or processes unless the character of the prime minister actually understands how they affect the team that's around them. Let me have a go at arguing for sentiment um, because uh, I, 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 I agree with a lot of the kind of organisational stuff and actually I, you know, uh, I never thought Dominic Cummings' um, space space style um, 70 Whitehall thing would work but, but because the forces against it were too strong. But I completely see the logic of uh, having the right people in the right room that's not in a uh, 17th, 18th century house. But one of the things that works well about number 10 is its pulling power, is the history, is the sense of power and authority that pervades the building, um, the fact that people, when you invite people to number 10, they come, um, that the Prime Minister has a, a sense of kind of authority that is drawn through that building, uh, if you like. I also think for good and ill, as we saw in some of the Partygate stuff, it, it engenders an incredibly strong sense of teamwork between the civil servants and the um, political advisors that are working in number 10 for the Prime Minister. I think, as Kath said, you are always around a prime minister going to get something of a court. The building doesn't help that, but that is the nature of prime ministerial power. And so personally, I would look more at the kind of structures around the prime minister, the, you know, the, the times when government has worked well, you know, the levers can be strengthened. For me, that's the, the key thing that we do badly is that the lack of institutional memory from number 10 to number 10. Yes, of course, it's got to adapt to the Prime Minister of the day and their their sort of working practices, their priorities and so forth. But we know quite a lot about the kind of systems that you need around a Prime yeah. Minister and how they should be structured, how they should work uh, and so forth and getting good people in to do them because a lot of it depends on 
on good people. And I just think a bit more continuity between governments would mean that you're not constantly reinventing the wheel. Well, this is certainly something we'll be thinking about in the context of our centre commission. I was going to come back to what you were saying, Alex. I do agree with with much of it, although I have to say that, that your first point about the sort of pulling power of Number 10 as a building strikes me as a, as a similar problem I think we've got with the House of Commons and yeah. the sort of Palace mm-hmm. of Westminster. Like, I, I, f- I do find it a bit depressing that rather than thinking, you know, we want people to come to these institutions because they're so good at what they do, We've got to resort to they come because it's a really a old, door. pretty building and yeah. it's got a famous door. You know, I just, you know, that's, it's kind of not what I think we should be aspiring to. Kath, you uh, teed up nicely the question of prime ministers and ministers and the role that they play in the whole system. And in, in your book, you write about the patronage power of the prime minister, that that's what gives the centre control, but also, and uh, to quote, from you, it's what mangles up British governance so that nothing meaningful can ever be done because no one is ever in place long enough to achieve it. So you're saying we have too many reshuffles? Yeah, I mean, this is like one of my least interesting opinions <laughs> on any subject because it's been so long. I really hope someone here disagrees, but it's been so long since I've heard anyone sort of say otherwise, whether they're, you know, a minister themselves or 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 a journalist. Um, and And I think that this ultimately, in a large part, comes down to the electoral system. The, you know, when you look at a period of relative stability, you look at something like the coalition. When you have proportional representation, when you have coalitions, the people that get put in individual ministers, it's sort of it's the result of really quite sort of careful negotiation between the parties, and it becomes harder to shift people around. It doesn't do it all on its own, but it, but it's a major factor. And so with ours, I mean, you know, as has been alluded to already, because there's comparative, there's, no, there's very little departmental power behind the prime minister, but they do have this complete com- power of a high own fire. And there is no negotiation between the parties because if the system is working as it usually does, it's going to hand you a big majority. You just see this constant churn of people. Like, I mean, talking to lots of sort of ministers about the decisions that got them into the ministerial position, talking to people in Downing Street about how those decisions are made, it's really very rare that that is based on the idea that this person really knows what's going on in that policy area. In fact, very often that's considered something of a detriment because it means they might be able to stand up to the prime minister's will a little stronger. If we take justice, right, I mean, I I obviously, look, my last book was called How to Be a Liberal, so you can guess what my position is on criminal justice and short-term sentences and things like that. But maybe the alternative view is correct. And actually, long sentences and prison does work and we just need to clamp down really hard. But honestly, since 2010, you know, at the very latest, we have had no long-lasting criminal justice policy. It has veered within one government from a liberal to an authoritarian position over and over and over again, from justice secretary to justice secretary. There is no real policy there. You know, there is no consistent policy. So if either side happened to be right about something, we're never going to find out because no one's left in charge long enough for it to be demonstrated to us. Ian, I, I completely agree, unfortunately, with you on the um, uh, on the sp- speed of ministerial churn. It, it is extraordinary and it is count- counter to good government. But question, and here's my sort of attempt to disagree slightly uh, or to uh, uh, change the emphasis, is it as much a question of government strategy 
and the ability of successive governments to set a long-term strategy, almost regardless of who is the Justice Secretary or the Housing Minister or, or, or whoever. And so the, the problem lies as much in that kind of deeper ability of governments to identify their priorities and then stick with them over the course of a parliamentary term to actually affect change, as much as it is with the merry-go-round of um, ministers, which you know, clearly is a, is a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, well, this is the problem, I suppose, with having like, you know, a plethora of constitutional defects. You just don't know which of this wealth of options could be producing the bad results. Um, and it's true that at the same time, we very rarely have sort of sustained structural approach to the thing that we're looking at. There's certain areas at certain times that I think you do. And, you know, you alluded to it earlier, but I would say with education policy and with health policy under new labor, you did. It, it's you know, it's been difficult since 2010, just because the conservative administrations have such a different ideological character to each other. In, in a way, they seem to sometimes be trying to refute the previous conservative prime minister more than anything else. When you look at sort of, you know, David Cameron's kind of corporate sort of free market approach versus Boris Johnson's and even Theresa May's sort of more working class Toryism state intervention approach, that makes it, you know, it makes it seem even less coherent than it would otherwise have been. But it's true that these things are both problems. I just think that the most obvious place that you can start fixing it is by trying to reduce the speed of churn. Yeah, I don't think it's a peculiarly conservative government problem. I'm pretty sure you yeah. could look to plenty of previous administrations and find the same sort of issue. And actually, the civil service recognises, you know, they, they talk about transitions, both reshuffles, change of minister and change of government, and say that actually it's the, the minister's character and their own interests and their own sort of priorities that makes the big difference. It's not necessarily obviously you do get wholesale policy changes when you get a change of government but a lot of it is down to that change of personnel the thing that really irritates me about you know reshuffles and the uh, the sort of constant churn of ministers is not just that but it's also this argument that has seems to have grown in recent years that the threat of a reshuffle is a really powerful tool oh, because actually the threat of a reshuffle is incredibly destabilising. It means that the minister's constantly worrying about that, trying to figure out what they need to do, probably more likely leads to them chopping and changing what they're doing to try and tweak what's the perfect sort of thing that's either going to keep them in the job, but more likely is going to get them a new job because a lot of the time that's what they want. But also it's incredibly destabilising for the civil service because they don't know with all these decisions going on whether they're going to have continuity, whether they're going to get something through, or it's going to change again in three months' time. It means a lot of energy is diverted to thinking about preparing for a potential reshuffle, and it just creates this sort of febrile atmosphere that is not good to the kind of things that we're saying you know, government needs to get better at. So I, I understand the politics of it. We all do, but it's really not very helpful. We published a report last week on reshuffles as they relate to general elections. And there we looked at when reshuffles had taken place prior to general elections and what that then meant for the longevity of ministers in role after general elections if they got the same job. And if you take that latter as a proxy for sort of success in your role that you don't get immediately moved on, actually the longer beforehand you've been shadowing a role or, or in, a, in a role before a general election means the longer you stay, thereafter, which is just something I think that both Starmer and Sunak need to be thinking. You know, they're both scheduled. We hear a lot about the threat of a reshuffle from yeah. both sides there at the moment. And just thinking about that, obviously, we don't know when the next general election is going to be, but it seems to be quite important if what you're focused on is success 
if and when you get into government. Yeah. And I mean, of course, there's always a good reason that, you know, somebody who is an excellent campaigner, actually you put them in government, it turns out they're not very good as a minister, or you know that they're not going to be when you're you're forming your first government. And similarly, reshuffles, when they do move a minister who is underperforming, of course, you know, this stuff needs to happen. But yes, clearly, building up experience as a shadow does help you do the job better when you get into government as a sort of a general rule. And similarly, you know, building up time in government helps you be more effective as a a minister. Ministers we interview, they always say it took me, you know, six months to really get up to speed, but I was really performing on all cylinders like 12 to 18 months into the job. At which point I was moved. Yeah. And it's very frustrating for them a lot of the time. So, um, yes, this is something that, you know, we generally need to just do completely differently. Let's move on to the civil service, which is territory which the RFG and you in particular, Alex, are always thinking about. The relationship between ministers and and officials has been pretty tricky, particularly in recent weeks, in fact. Alex, do you think that that is really an unusual state of affairs? Or is this, again, a question of us sort of having rose-tinted spectacles when we look backwards at how those relationships have worked in the past? I think aspects of the recent developments, whether they were Dominic Raab related or Jacob Rees-Mogg related, are unusual. Um, I think there's similar forces have played out sometimes where governments have tried to blame the civil service for not being effective enough, going too slowly, and all the kind of commonly recognised issues with the civil service. But I think on Dominic Raab, it was very unusual for a minister to directly turn the reason for his resignation over intimidation, if not bullying, um, to uh, an attack so directly on the civil service that then went unanswered in government. And I think that is a uh, a, a negative development and very unusual. I think with Jacob Rees-Mogg, when he was in government and some of the quote-unquote reforms that he was pressing there, I think the unusual nature of that was they they didn't seem to be reforms with an end of improving the civil service in mind. There was a very strong sense they had either a kind of ideological or political or kind of game-playing motivation behind them. And I think civil servants are fairly well used to being beaten up and uh, generally, despite what um, some of the commentary suggests, have quite thick skins to these sorts of things. But I think it was the uh, it was the attack without without end or without a kind of constructive end in mind that particularly jarred. All that said... I talk to civil servants all the time. Some of them are very affected by this, particularly actually how it sort of resonates out across wider civil service uh, teams. But a lot of them are getting on with the job. A lot of them have got perfectly sensible ministers um, who are you know, implicitly inside the department saying, dissociating themselves from some of um, this stuff. So um, I, I do think it is a big problem, but I think it's a problem as much of tone and direction setting as it is about the day-to-day relationships between most civil servants and most ministers. The other thing to say is that most civil servants have the same frustrations as ministers do about the civil service. Mm. You know, it, it's and and it's all stuff that we've seen going back sort of, you know, 50 plus years in terms of reports on how to improve the civil service. So it's, it's not like we don't know what the problems are. And in a lot of cases, people 
know what the solutions are. The IFG's written enough reports on it. Uh, the problem for me is just the constant sort of churn in it of you don't have the same continuity of the people who are, are getting on with doing it. And again, we're, we're talking about a potential general election. We're talking about, you know, these big problems in government. Yes, there's a lot of focus on sort of new policy ideas for whoever uh, comes out on top after the next general election. But either one has got to support the ongoing improvement of the civil service. It doesn't need yet another, okay, let's stop and review all of it. What it needs is time, effort, and particularly authority and accountability given to the people who are being asked to improve this. And if that doesn't happen, you know, it can continue. It will always need to continue alongside business as usual, getting on with um, implementing new policy. But you've got to kind of devote the time and effort to make sure that this stuff changes. Otherwise, we just keep going around the same old merry-go-round. Ian, what's your analysis of why civil service reform doesn't happen? I think the civil service ultimately reflects what ministers want from it. We have this sort of litmus test of the special advisors. And, you know, because they can be whatever we want them to be. I mean, there's no real restriction on what I mean. You know, if a minister wanted to pick up someone who was just bringing them objective, empirical data about the viability of their plan so that it had more chance of succeeding when it was implemented, then they could have that, right? But they but they choose instead to get people who are basically to do with media and to do with providing, you know, party political advice and a bit of skin in the game, like an emotional reassurance of having someone whose fate is entwined with yours. And that gives us, I think, a kind of an interesting indication of what they're looking for in the civil service. And we've seen it. We saw it in the Thatcher administration. We saw it in the Blair administration. We saw it in the Johnson administration. You know, and over and over, it's the same sort of thing. Like, really, I mean, and in grades, I don't think it was ever quite as bad as it was, for instance, under Johnson or, or even now. But it's a sort of sense of like, no, no, you're just getting in the way now. Like, I just need, you know, I need you to come and just be a bit more helpful and just be more of a servant rather than someone who's telling me about all oh, these legal problems, et cetera. Now, that is not always the case. There are plenty of ministers, even now, as was alluded to before, that where that is not the case. But as a general trend, it trends in that direction. And so the change that we need, which is basically slowing down the churn in the civil service in exactly the same way we need to slow down the churn in the ministerial level. It just doesn't happen because I don't think there's any real political push from the masters for it to happen. If politicians really wanted that to happen, if government really wanted it to happen, I do think that there will be influence in the civil service that it would speed up a bit. But instead, it's this quite lethargic process. It's lots of stop starts. It's programs that have been initiated. And then just sort of, you can't even really find out what happened to them. It's just sort of, an, oh, it just sort of slowly died a death and everyone forgot that it existed. And we ended up in the same position that we were in in the 1960s, but just with civil servants who were slightly more cowed by ministers than they were earlier. Alex, Ian touched on this and you did, but the big question which has been raised by Rob, but also by the decision of Sue Gray to, to seek, uh, we don't know whether she's yet going to get uh, a, a job with Keir Starmer, is this question around politicisation of the civil service. Um, and in fact, uh, I should plug, we have an IFG event on just that subject on Tuesday at 9am. We've got uh, Gus O'Donnell, Aisha Hazarika and George Eustace coming to talk about this question. But what's your view on, on the inevitability of politicisation? Are we realistic about where it's actually got to and, and where is it going? I don't think it's inevitable. I think often um, people underestimate the both theoretical and actual influence that ministers already have over civil service appointments. It goes a little bit to Ian's point about, you know, ministers get the civil service they want. And actually, it is very unusual for uh, 
a civil servant to be in post uh, if they lose the confidence of their minister. You know, there would tend to be, you know, that would tend to be addressed. They would tend to be moved, uh, not sacked normally. Um, uh, so uh, there's an implicit sort of personalization, if not politicization, um, already. But I do think impartiality is an important aspect of the civil service that we should be arguing for. I think it's important for you know, anti-corruption reasons. I think it's important for good advice and speaking truth to power reasons. I think it's important for the skills that you want. Um, I think uh, a politicised civil service would be a hollowed out civil service. But equally, I think that the civil service um, at the moment is not effectively demonstrating the benefits that you get from impartiality, i.e., long-term thinking, deep expertise and skills, some sense of kind of continuity in government, truth to power, um, and and so on. So there's a real kind of reform to preserve for the civil service. I think it is a potential moment of uh, maybe small C crisis for the civil service, that if it doesn't, if it's not able to sell the benefits of an impartial expert civil service, then the demands to do things differently will get stronger. And there's, there's still like real ongoing confusion about that concept that impartial is an institution partial to serving the government of the day yeah. and it's actually played it out a bit this week uh, I saw Alistair Jack the Scottish secretary was criticizing the Scottish civil service uh, because they are supporting uh, the SNP in their bid for independence and you know Scottish civil service response is well yes of course we are that's our job <laughs> And it's this weird confusion. And of course, you know, it, it's sort of the same civil service, but it's sort of separate civil service. But of course, they're serving a different government in Scotland. So they have to follow a different policy in Scotland. But it's the same impartial, you know, institution, effectively. And those two things can happen together. But you've got to understand that to, to be able to support it as an institution. And the same ministers in Westminster would say, these civil servants, they're just not sufficiently behind our programme. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which does point slightly to the sort of I wouldn't want to accuse uh, anyone uh, individually of bad faith arguments, but I do think there is a kind of you know when the civil service becomes part of the terrain of you know contested political debate, um, you lose sight of you know what it is as an institution, the value it brings, but also some of these uh, not not always kind of exciting but really important aspects of just the uh, you know the more effective administration of the state. So very much welcome Ian's uh, efforts to uh, explain, popularise, and uh, elucidate. This yeah, and I mean way. this is not a new phenomenon either. I mean from you know fact to Blair, even Wilson, you know, they have all sort of used the, the civil service as something to sort of beat up in order to sort of detract attention from, from where their own policies are failing. We would have been better as a government, but these are the sort of reasons. And you've seen plenty, you know, there's been plenty of times when there's been briefings against senior civil servants and, and so forth. It, it'll be really interesting to see where the next year of the Sunak government goes, because I think you know, Johnson jo Johnson's government was a government that failed in all sorts of ways. And so it's not surprising then that they kind of thrashed out around um, some of the um, you know, instruments around uh, around that. Sunak has put a lot of store on competence. Mm. Uh, he's got his five tests. At the moment, he needs the civil service on side. He needs competent administration. Yeah, if you're going to deliver, you've if got he to, starts yeah. failing those tests, that will be when it, you know, an, another moment of jeopardy. I think for the civil service at a particularly kind of hyper political moment as we tip into uh, the next election. There is also a slight qualitative difference as well, isn't there, with the new generation of politicians? And you know, the civil servants were attacked by Blair by Thatcher. Absolutely right. Uh, and yet there is a slightly conspiratorial, it's sort of ankle deep conspiratorial language that is used and has been, I'm sorry to use the B word, but it is, it, the Brexit was the moment that it got unleashed. Just so the sort of, you know, the liberal establishment, 
you know, and sort of this illusion, sometimes explicitly stated, sometimes not, of like the deep state. And, you know, the civil servants are wrapped up in, in that sense of the elite that are trying to, you know, undermine our project for the people and blah, blah. And once you start talking in those terms, I think it becomes really quite easy to see a civil servant come in and tell you, well, there's a legal problem here, or whatever, just go, well, you're a Ramona. You know, and, and you will speak, you know, I have spoken to civil servants who, you know, well, I mean, honestly, if we're completely honest, mostly they are remainers, you know, but they, but you know, but when they're in their job, when they're at work, their job is to deliver for the minister. That is their job. And they actually genuinely begin to emotionally, they're in their job most of the time, right? So emotionally, they get just as frustrated by obstacles as they would if they'd voted a different way. And yet they really have felt the need, particularly since 2016, to sort of overprove themselves to a minister, just being, you know, to, to, to stray away from precisely that thing. And I think that qualitative difference is fundamentally ideological and about political culture and political mentality. That, that means that there's been just a, a bit more poison over recent years than there would have been even from the attacks in the past. I think there's a really interesting mindset point um, that Ian puts his mind on there, which is that I think civil servants and ministers find it increasingly difficult to understand each other. I mean, the nature of some of the, the way the ministers are thinking at the moment, I think they genuinely find it very difficult to imagine how a civil servant can be impartial and how they can be motivated and incentivized to serve a minister in the interests of that their civil servant's own career rather than their own kind of personal views. I always find it very easy to flick that kind of ideological switch off. Um, uh, but I, I do think there's a mindset difference. But also just to argue slightly conversely some of this is is again equating it's kind of making ad hominem something that is structural it is understandable that if you're a minister it's quite a lonely job in a department with a massive number of civil servants to feel frustration with the fact that stuff just isn't getting done when mistakes happen when you know poor correspondence whatever it might be I can understand the frustrations with the system, with the bureaucracy. Mm. The problem is that that just turns into either an attack on the institution or an attack on on the people and their intent and effort and motivation and so forth. And I think, again, it's just conflating different things because, again, a lot of civil servants will feel the same frustrations with getting stuff done or with not being more effective or or whatever. And that's just part of the scale of government and what you're trying to do and the complexity of some of the stuff that, that has, you know, we've been trying to do, governments have been trying to do in recent years. So I am sympathetic to where some of that well-meaning criticism has come from. At least two of us in this room have experienced the frustration of working uh, in, in large bureaucracies and uh, and are no longer doing so. So good <laughs> point there, Kath. Ian, you touched there obviously on the B word and it's you've made no secret of your, your views. You're a regular on the Romaniacs podcast and, and you are clearly no fan of Boris Johnson, all his trusts. Or maybe the Conservatives at all, really. Do you think we should read your book as a as a neutral observations of 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 a, of a Westminster observer, or you know, how do you think your wider views have affected this critique? I think I've been quite scrupulously fair, really. <laughs> I mean, the, the proof's in the pudding, and people will tell me if they if you know they think otherwise. But I find it quite easy to distance myself from this stuff, just on the basis of um. I'm not a supporter, certainly not a member of any political party. I don't have any instinctive sympathy, really, with any of the political parties. I hate different ones to different levels of intensity at various moments, and certainly the one that's in government at the moment has been obviously catastrophic. 
But I think that basis and, and a certain wariness of the whole idea of political parties. I know you can't get rid of them, but, you know, they are an alien entity in our constitutional arrangements. And I think that they have lots of pernicious effects. You can't get rid of them, so you accept them. But just to have a certain amount of disdain for them gives you a, a kind of distance. There is, I do have priors, though. I am a liberal and I believe in liberal ideas. And one of the chief liberal ideas that I believe in is that all ideas and all propositions are improved by being criticised. And that the best criticisms come from expertise and deep subject knowledge, from specialisation, really. Uh, and that that will therefore lead you... Essentially, that's the idea that an open society, a liberal democracy, is more not just freer than a closed society, but it's more efficient than a closed society because we spot problems with what we're trying to do before we implement it. Because after we implement it, we have the kind of society where people go, no, hang on, this is not working. And so my, my priors in this case are, are we living up to those basic liberal ideas, which should be quite widely shared in the way that we do politics at the moment? And I have to say that my answer to that is a very categoric no. And just to also push you on the sort of counter point of view, we at the IFG are always like you thinking about how we might fix the things we think are wrong with government, but also try to build on what it does do well. Is there anything you would pick out that actually you think government does do well that we ought to do more of or, or seek seek to replicate? Well, I mean, the two parts of the overall system that I think work are the select committees and the House of Lords. Uh, and they do well because they do have room for evidence gathering and expertise, and they do make room for parties to work together. They set up structures where even if the government's trying to get something through the Lords, it has to convince people of its case rather than just being able to bludgeon it through. If we go to government, government, if we look at sort of when number 10's been functioning the best, and as we sort of said earlier, I mean, I certainly think that second Blair term regardless of what they were doing or what we think about Iraq or blah, 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 was really when it when Downing Street was functioning at a pretty high level for the British system. It was about taking that kind of stuff on board, predominantly through Michael Barber, just going, well, we're basing a lot of this on evidence. We're doing it in quite a detailed way. We're using expertise uh, and we're creating a firewall against being distracted. So there are little sort of diamonds in the rough, but I've got to say, you've got to get through quite a lot of rough before you find the diamond. I think it is, it is important to ask that question, Hannah, about about what, what happens well. And there is a critique um, that we would talk about a lot, that some of the things that happen well happen sort of despite the system or despite the incentives in the system rather than because of it too often. But uh, there are you know, lots of ministers and civil servants working on good policies that are more or less effectively uh, delivered. We talk about policy successes, offshore wind, um, I've been talking a bit about recently, same-sex marriage, the homes for Ukraine, and actually the whole prosecution of the of, of foreign policy in, in Ukraine has been a you know, arguable success. So recognising that I think is important and uh, learning from it. I'd also think, kind of final thought on Ian's book more generally, I'm completely on board with the scrutiny and the critiquing of ideas where I think I still have questions, and I don't know what the answer myself, and it was prompted by you talking about political parties and the uh, dangers of them, uh, Ian, is that we do need sort of organising principles for government. This is the ex-civil servant in me, the, the executive. Governments do need authority. A free-for-all in Parliament is uh, not, in my view, the best way of getting legislation through. Um, so how we kind of create the conditions for the, for the executive to have, to be held to account, but to have power in order to do things while being effectively scrutinised feels to me to be one of the, the unanswered um, questions around some of these things. Yeah, I think this balance between um, recognising the successes of, of, of what the system does well, whilst also being able to talk about how we can do things better, that is really important because there is a real danger that you 
end up sort of getting into hyperbole about, you know, how terrible our government is, or it becomes very party pre or anything like that, particularly in an election year. And I mean, to segue, Hannah, um, you know, we tried to do that in a report that two of our our colleagues, um, Beatrice Barr and Maddie Bishop, have put out uh, this week. Uh, on private offices where they they acknowledge the fact that, you know, most ministers, they talk with great praise about the people who are in their private office because these are people they work very closely with. It's fundamental for a ministerial success to, to do that job well. And actually, by and large, the idea of private office is a very good one. It's something that actually a lot of private sector look on quite fondly and some have sought to replicate. And yet at the same time, there's still some fundamental problems with it and how we could do it better, supporting staff more, making sure that there's sort of better training, getting experienced people into the job. And particularly when it comes to junior ministers who are often considered as a bit of an afterthought in terms of their private offices. So it is something which, again, you need to get that right balance between making sure that this is something that is valued and you recognise the successes of it. And yet at the same time, you can push for it to be better. Ian, I'll give you the final word on this. Governments have the right to get legislation through. They are elected. Where our system is in terms of the balance, especially between government and parliament, that it is tilted so far to one way, and you can point to any number of things, whether it's control of the timetable, whether it's the use of statutory instruments, that has pushed so far towards government area that we're in drastic need of a rebalancing. And typically speaking, when we look around, I mean, if we look at sort of parliaments in Europe, I'm thinking places like Germany now, where you do have more power for parliamentarians, where parliamentarians are actually genuinely lawmakers in that original sense of the word, you don't see them trying to necessarily just, you know, destroy government legislation so they can't do what they said they were going to do in an election. What you tend to see, especially at the committee stage, something that we don't see here, is a much more sort of collegiate approach of, look, we recognize that you have a right to and are going to do X. May I suggest that you'd be better off trying to do it by looking at Y and Z rather than the manner that you've looked at. That sense of the ideas being improved and actually the government's own agenda being improved and being more stable and long-lasting by having undergone some kind of rigorous intellectual and evidential and empirical challenge at the point that it was being brought forward as legislation. So I don't think that any of this stuff challenges government's right to do things. I think the balance has tilted for too long now in one direction, and it's pretty urgent. If we want good quality public services, if we want a country that is well run, that we start to redress that balance. I think that's a good note to end on for today. Thank you all for listening at home. And thank you to Kath Hudden, Alex Thomas, and especially to Ian Dunt. Your book, I am sure, is available in all good bookshops. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, and be sure to subscribe and give us a review. And while you're there, subscribe to the newly out sister channel, IFG Event. All our best events are now landing in your podcast feeds. Our new paper on private offices, which Kath mentioned, can be found on our website, as can details of our upcoming events on impartiality and special advisors. Make sure to register now. Does Westminster work well? Well, as we've said, sometimes, but often it could do far better. And that's why you need to follow the IFG and tell all your friends about us and our ideas for making government more effective. See you next week. <laughs>